Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to episode 57 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret – never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. This week, I'm so pleased to share a fabulous chat with the amazing composer, musician, singer-songwriter, arranger, synth-pop pioneer, Hannah Peel. Not only is her own work an inspiring and ambitious blend of projects that will blow your musical mind, I'm talking about Mary Cassio, a seven-movement odyssey composed for analog synths and a full 29-piece colliery brass band, to her sublime electronic opus, Awake But Always Dreaming, which was an exploration of music's power to cut through dementia. She was part of the band The Magnetic North with Simon Tong and another man with plenty of Weller connections, Erland Cooper. She also added her orchestration skills to Paul Weller's incredible recent albums, True Meanings, On Sunset and Fat Pop Volume 1. And who can forget that incredible gig at Raw Festival Hall in 2018 that turned into the magnificent Other Aspects album. Hannah is also one of the presenters of Radio 3's magnificent late evening show Night Tracks, which I highly recommend. And her soundtrack to the TV thriller The Deceived won the Music Producers Guild Prize for Best UK Original Score Recording of the Year 2021. She was nominated for an Emmy for her Game of Thrones The Last Watch score and her brilliant new 2021 album Fur Wave was Mercury Music Prize nominated. In fact, at the time of recording, we were just days away from that awards ceremony too. So let's dig into it. A lady who's been very, very close to the work of Paul Weller for the past few years. My guest this week, Hannah Pill. Hello. I don't know where to start really because you know, singer, songwriter, composer, arranger, uh, you seem to play every instrument on the planet, uh, radio presenter, producer. I mean, there's literally no end to your amazing talents, if you don't mind me saying. Yeah, I'm just a bit nuts, I think. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'm talented sometimes. I just think I just can't help doing music. It just seems to be nonstop. So. You love a project, don't you? I love a project. I love the next thing. And, you know, I guess that's one thing that I really enjoy about working with Weller is that 
he's just got it flowing out of him all the time. He's constantly in motion, constantly producing and making new things. And and I find that really exciting. And I, I guess when you meet someone who's at his level and has been doing it for so long, it just inspires you to keep on going. Because that would be really easy for a man like him in terms of the, the back catalogue to rest on his laurels and just kind of just dial it in. That must be a real inspiration to see somebody who's constantly kind of moving forward all the time and wanting to find out what's new, whether it's his own music or others isn't it? Totally. It's very inspiring and I guess one of the first things I've ever said about him is that his ability to keep moving forward and never sit back because I think that's when people do become stale and they probably lose the passion and spark that keeps the next thing going and you know, his ability as well to find younger artists and embrace them and trust them. And I think that's a really, really magical thing. You know, I guess he, you know, he's in the position where if it doesn't work out, he doesn't, he can get somebody else. But I've just had such a wonderful experience working with him. And, and you know, I, I really do hope it continues into the yeah. future. Well, we'll talk about the trust because I think that's, I mean, just incredible uh, what you've done together over the past few years. So we're going to dig into the links with Paul over the past decade or so. So, and also this beautiful catalogue of, of music and it's more than that it's projects and I'm going to talk about that with you because you there's not there's much more than, than just the albums that come from you and the singles and stuff these are fully fleshed out things they're beautiful but first of all have to understand when was it that you first discovered the music of Paul Weller was it the jam the style council or Weller solo oh uh, solo actually yeah I um, when I went home from my first year of uni I worked in a pub and it was called the White Bear in Barnsley and it, it was in the middle of a housing estate I don't even know if it's still there or not, but it was an amazing little pub, like, you know, a, a rough housing estate and the kind where, like, the landlady would put uh, dripping on white bread and chop it into triangles and leave it on the, you know, on the counter, on the bar for everybody coming in from, you know, the the kind of workmen jobs would come in for a pint and then have the dripping. And <laughs> there was always a bunch of characters and they were so lovely. And, and one guy used to copy CDs and then give you the CDs for a pound and... And, you know, print out the cover and it would always have lines on, on the printer. But uh, he had a big list. And so I asked him if I could have some Paul Weller, some of the solo stuff. So he gave me a couple of CDs. And uh, that was the first time I'd listened to, like, You Do Something To Me and, and all those classic tracks. I think it was a live album. Yeah. And so I guess that just stuck with me. So, yeah, it was an amazing experience. <laughs> so actually, <laughs> when I met him and then when we'd started doing the, the show for the South Bank, you know, the Royal Festival Hall that track he he wanted to do that track so actually arranging that track and knowing it so well was like a, that was a really special moment and I don't I never told him that I got a rip off CD of his record <laughs> yeah has there come a point where you started paying full price for Paul's material or have you ever bought yeah. a Paul Weller well I guess I don't know I guess when you look at the music industry now I probably paid more for CDs than anyone does for any streaming service yeah, that's so very, um, that's very true I think I'm, I would have first discovered your music probably about 10 years ago would have been the album um, Broken Wave, which I think must have been about 10 years ago. And I have a feeling it would have been via a Weller link. And I don't know if you know this, because I don't know if there was a connection between you and Paul at that point. Probably not. He was always going on at that point about a band called Tongue. And I'd probably pronounce that wrong because there's two ends in it. Yeah. So you created this with Mike Lindsay, who was from that band. And at that point, Mike Lindsay had also remixed a track on Wake Up the Nation on the deluxe version. So there's a little connection there as well. Mike Lindsay's now in a, um, well, still in Tongue, but also in a duo um, with Laura Marling as well. I know Mike. Mike very, very well, but I didn't know the 
the tongue connection, Tom. Yeah, and it was always going on about that. And then, yeah, it was a tongue remix for She Speaks from Wake Up the Nation. So, yeah, that first album would have been, like I say, 10 years ago. And then presumably it was Erland Cooper that introduced you to Paul. Yeah, yeah, he did, yeah. And I, I remember seeing him in Erland and the Carnival, would again have probably been about 10 years ago, around about a similar time. Um, and they supported Paul and, again, loved all his music. So the connection for you was, what, the band The Magnetic North, I'm guessing, that you were in with Erland and with... Um, yeah, it goes... I didn't realise how like cyclical it all was because yeah, obviously Mike Lindsay produced my first record, Mike Lindsay Tongue now Lump. Um, so we shared a studio in South in East London, sorry, and yeah, he made my very first record. And and up until that point, I'd always been a session musician or I'd kind of written for theatre or little bits of short film up in Liverpool. Yeah, and then when that record was being released and it was finished uh, I got the guy who ran my little label he's called Static Caravan he's like a tiny like you know he does it all from his kind of office in his house but he is a scientist by day and then puts out the, these records on, on like seven inch vinyl so he would put out like I think a first Erland in the Carnival he put out the first kind of tongue Beth Jean's Houghton who's de blonde like loads of different artists and I was one of them and then so he asked, actually asked Simon Tong, the guitarist, and Erland, if they wanted to do a remix of one of my tracks. And through that, then I went and met them, and then I ended up supporting them on tour for like maybe six months. We went to Europe, we went around the UK. And then from that, that was when we started to build into they Simon and Erland had already kind of started the Magnetic North, but without giving it a name. They'd been to Orkney on a trip, and then they were looking for someone who could score and, and add vocals and stuff. And so I just became the natural third member and then yeah we made the Magnetic North record so so yeah I knew of them supporting Paul from the beginning because that was their biggest gig and they became good friends with him so yeah that's exactly how I met him Paul was looking for somebody to score and Erland recommended me now where and I would love to ask Erland the same question because some of his projects uh, are also like way out there I mean his latest one he's, he's recorded an album and then buried it in the n- middle of nowhere for nobody to be able to find <laughs> yeah. it's, it's insane and you and you equally um, these projects seem to arrive at you from what I can work out in terms of people kind of asking you to get involved in something or give giving you an idea and then suddenly they become these huge big things but um, talk to me about where where you get your ideas from where does the inspiration come from for these things (laughs) yeah Yeah, they're always quite mad actually Paul Paul introduced me to Noel Gallagher and we were going to do some I was going to do some scoring for him. It, it didn't work out because of the pandemic and stuff. And he was asking me what I made. And, and I was like, I'll never forget it because I was like, oh, yeah, I... I've, you know, I've got quite a few records out and I said, I've got this one with like colliery brass band and synthesizers and they go into space and he just kind of looked at me and went, why the fuck have you done that? (laughs) 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 And so I was just like, yeah, that's true. Like, why would you do a colliery brass band record and think that that was what people might buy? But, um, so yeah, there is always that element of like by chance and, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's always to do with story and storytelling. And there's always an element of wanting to convey something, no matter how like off kilter it is with the concept or what, what kind of like instrumentation it is. There's always an element. And, you know, the Mary Cassio album was my opportunity to get a full 30 piece player band 
funded find a way to record it you know it was one of those things that I wanted to use as a I suppose in career aspects I wanted to get out of being known as just a singer-songwriter because I didn't ever feel like that ever I was so not a singer-songwriter I mean I really struggle with lyrics and you know I used that album as a really kind of like here is my instrumental record and proof that I can do that and it, it kind of opened a lot of doors especially for scoring and things and that's what I do mostly you know like tv and film work and and I love orchestrating and strings and yeah I get a real buzz from all that so it was a nice so yeah so even though these records are like mad and they've always got a story behind them there, there is always an intention as well um, oh, and they're brilliant I have to say the the album that you did which would have um, just before the, the Mary Cassio Awake But Always Dreaming is, is a lovely album I have to say and um, and makes me think I'm going to well up now makes me think of my nan um, who had dementia oh, and um, is uh, honestly some of the stuff that you do are from that is it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing honestly thank you thank you so much yeah that i mean even that record is yeah a long journey in the making and and erland actually helped co-produce that one as well so we worked together for quite a long time then when he started doing his own solo stuff we found we couldn't work together anymore in terms of like he was too busy and i'm too busy so well you are the busiest woman in in rock and roll in a minute we'll have to talk about that but that album came about from you reading something about the positive effects of music on people with dementia was that right and and your own experience with your own grandmother yeah. would that be right yeah totally like my experience of you know if anyone's ever experienced that in their family you you start to feel like you're losing touch with them and, and a connection and and I didn't know the power of what music could do like it's 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 magical like when you experience playing somebody who doesn't remember your name or your father or, or where they are or who they were married to for 50 years and then you play them a piece of music and they can sing it back to you lyric for lyric and uh, and also trigger memories of that time when they heard that track or a story they had with it it's just like I just was like wow music is fucking amazing like it just was so yeah that I mean that totally inspired the record of like delving into another world and mm. and how the brain works and you know I really went into the science of it and joined a kind of collective that were the welcome collection in London that were researching brain neurons and developing arts and ideas to do with the science and I, I just think it's it's a it's a wonderful tool for people that are living with with the disease and that's what I mean about you fully immersing yourself into in it's almost like a, I think you're like a method musician in a sense whereby like, you know, you have, like, you have, like yeah. the Robert De Niro of the music world. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I never thought of it like that, but definitely there is an element of that for sure. <laughs> yeah, you definitely dive in. I have to say. When would you have first met Paul then? Yeah, definitely through Erland, and he sent aspects from True Meaning, and as a bit of a test, I think, and. Uh, he just said, can you add some strings to this? And so I, at that time, was playing my violin a lot more. I'm, I'm not playing at all, really, sadly, at the moment. But um, So I laid up all the string arrangement on there and I did the strings and we laid them in the studio and Erland recorded it for me and, and built this quartet just out of my violin and sent that back to Paul. And he was just like, I love it. Can you do more? So then we ended up actually recording the quartet. And actually, that's the one track on the record where my strings have stayed and we just added cello to the, the real cello to the bottom. So that was quite nice. And it just went from there, really. Yeah. just And then it was never me that recorded after that. It was always with the string quartet, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> but I think you're actually on a Paul Weller album before that. And I don't know if you know this. You might be oh. juicing royalties. <laughs> Who knows? Was it a remix? 
Yeah, you're right. So A Kind Revolution, track number one, Woosie Mama, opens the album with P.P. Arnold and Madeline Bell on backing vocals. But the deluxe version has a remix, as they always do, and it's an Erland and the Carnival remix, and I think you did strings on it. It did. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. Wow. <laughs> and did you have any connection with Paul through that, or was it all through Erland? No, and I, I, he probably doesn't even know that. <laughs> so. Let's talk about True Meanings. I've got it here. It's a, this is honestly, what an album. What an album. Um, and Paul had been planning this for such a long time, I gather. Um, I wasn't privy to that. I guess he, he probably was, if, if that's what you know. But, um, but I was more kind of brought in. The strings are always brought in more towards the end or the last three quarters of, an, of a record. So I don't usually know the process behind it. And I guess our conversations as well are always so present. They're not about what has been happening. They're always just about how do we do that? What do we do? What's the ideas? Let's go do them. And that's always the conversations. And, you know, Paul's always amazing with music and always really amazing with like chat, having a chat as well. Like, why aren't you married yet? Why aren't you doing this? Why? Like he's one for like gossip. That's for sure. So um, <laughs> oh, no, nobody else has always... mentioned that on the podcast before. <laughs> he loves, loves and gossip. he also thought I was like, he also thought I was about 24 or 25. And when I told him my actual age, he was like, no, what? what? I can't believe it. And I was like, no, it's true. <laughs> but he probably thought he was getting a young prodigy and, and he wasn't. <laughs> um, I mean, the album is a beautiful thing. Um, and we'll touch on some of that because I think we talked about trust earlier on. There's a huge amount of trust given to you. And how much, I mean, I'm guessing not loads of direction. Yeah, he's very, very much, um, tell, you know, just gives me clues to what he wants. He never really references other artists he'll sometimes send a track through and go this is really great but he'll never say I want anything like that he'll just be like listen to that it's great he always sends like little clips of like him playing guitar and like singing along like humming along like a melody so usually what I'll do is I'll just pick that out and then add it to the score and and then send it back and there usually is a little bit of back and forth in terms of like maybe that's a bit too much or maybe we need more here or can we have something in middle eight but that that, I mean it's pretty quick yeah the actual structure of things so but I guess you know when you're in a room with someone it's it's he's I don't think we've I don't think I've done it remotely ever I think I've always gone down there and and we've played the record in the room and you always get that vibe anyway as soon as you as soon as you're in the room with the artist you kind of know what's what's to come if that makes sense. Yeah. So when you get that first play of the Soul Searchers and Old Castles, and uh, actually I'll come back to Old Castles because that's an interesting one because you worked with Andy Cross on that, who's who's a bit of an arranger at times as well. But songs like Bowie and Wishing Well and Moving On and all that, when you hear those for the first time in that environment in Black Barn, presumably on the big speakers, as everybody keeps t- talking to me about, what's that like? Oh, it's so exciting because <laughs> everything always sounds amazing. <laughs> so, and also, like just hearing those tracks for the first time is always a real pleasure because they've been worked up by the rest of the band so I always get to go in and hear it with the drums and the bass and maybe sometimes it's a rough vocal or maybe it's a rough drum take and they're going to redo stuff but generally I get to feel the vibe of it with everything on it already so you get, you do get a sense of, of excitement and everybody listening and yeah it's, it's really good there's always a door open to the outside and there's like chickens on the other side of the wall and stuff like that it's really you can always hear them or the cockerel good vibes <laughs> I think the cockerel was credited on the album 22 Dreams 
if I remember rightly. There's actually a credit <laughs> for the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually on there. Um, and it must have been great to see Erlen Cooper, your friend, writing lyrics as well. So Bowie, Wishing Well, and White Horses, and and he did backing vocals on a couple of the songs as well. But writing lyrics for Paul, which nobody writes lyrics for Paul, do they? No, I think it was definitely a dream come true for Erlen. So it's um yeah, he did do quite a few co-writes on that record. So I think it was definitely a thing that he was wanting to do and explore. And and it's amazing that Erlen did that with him because Erland like even though he's gone and done very instrumental records now you know his songwriting skills and the way he writes lyrics is is brilliant he's so quick and and fluent with it so it was always the thing that I really adored about working with him was always just like he would come up with things very quickly and so I can see why like he's he got on really well with Paul and they, they did a couple together. So on True Meanings I think I'm right in saying the string section you brought in was Demon Strings was that right? Best known for being like the in-house band for for um, Damon Albarn and, and Grillers I think more often than not um, but a lot of his projects as well so uh, had you worked with them before were they a recommendation or how did that come about? Yeah I loved them um, they were uh, so Simon Tong he, in Magnetic North. He was in Gorillas and in the Good and the Bad and the Queen with Damon, and they always used the Demon Strings. So I became really, really good friends with the girls that play. And yeah, as soon as I, as soon as this came up, I was like, "Can you do you want to come and do this?" And then you know, equally, Paul has totally fallen in love with them. And I don't know if they're actually working as the same quartet anymore, but we still try and get them all together just as a as a treat because <laughs> he's just like I want I want them in there because well, I guess one of the nice things is is that you always see the friendly faces and the people that you've worked with before and and you know especially this last record you know being done in a pandemic it, it feels like you need to honor your friends and, and work with your friends because everybody had such a hard time yeah, like yeah absolutely what is it that you brought to that LP do you feel and what is because it's for me it's like these these beautiful like intricate layers that are kind of coming in and out of the record and adding to I mean Paula talks about doing an acoustic album for a while and Gravity I know was a track that had been kicking about for like five seven years he's talked about but Aspects has come up a lot on this podcast as being a, a, a real favourite of people from a 40 year back catalogue of being a real favourite for people but um, yeah what, what was it that you felt you could add to it and bring to that project oh wow I you know I guess for me, it was very much a first time experience working with Paul. So there's definitely a delicacy and also a, a kind of freedom in experimentation as well, like some of the melody lines and, and the arrangements. And, you know, out of everything, I adore working with string on the, in the format of this record. Like it's amazing doing like on Sunset and Fat Pop and stuff. But for me, you can get really get the detail of the cello and the viola and the melody lines and the interweaving kind of things when it's stripped back because that's when it's heard. Whereas when you've got the drums and everything else and you, you lose the melody lines that are in the bottom because that's just the way it has to be with the mix and stuff. So yeah, so this record is very special to me in, in that sense. And you, there's a real honesty and sincerity anyway to the songs. So all I had to do was kind of work with that and the lyrics that Paul presented me with. Now I'm going to take you back to October 2018, this beauty here. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Oh. Royal, the London Royal Festival Hall, I was there on the second night and this beautiful concert has been captured with that live, I'm holding up the live album, you can't see this podcast, listeners, uh, but holding up the live double album, other aspects, and you conducted and wrote all the orchestral arrangements for these two shows. This was London Metropolitan Orchestra this time around, was that right? Yeah. yeah. And joined by Phil Vicox's horn section as well. And I mean, wow, 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 wow. I know I'm embarrassing you a little, um, but... <laughs> 
I mean, what a bloody brilliant piece of work, honestly. The concert itself was fabulous, but the live album is great. Oh, yeah, I loved that. It was so good. How did you know that was going to be a live show? Was that early on, that conversation? or No, it was after. I think they already, I think Paul and all the team knew that it was going to be a live show and it was going to be in London. But I think it, I, I think I was definitely under the, the test <laughs> for the record. And, and so when that all went well and we all got on really, really well, he was like, well, do you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, great. But I never considered conducting it. I was like, I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I'll do the arrangements, but I'm not conducting. That's, you know, I'm not a conductor. And I never have done. Like I would be like maybe in sessions, but not like ever on stage. So so there was definitely an element of me saying, yeah, I'll score it, but we'll get somebody else and we'll think about that and do stuff. And, um, and yeah, you know, like the usual string players, Antonio and Cotts, they're all interweaved within the, the London Met Orchestra. So that was quite important to find an orchestra that would allow us to have our own players as well. And also to find an orchestra that would allow, in the end, me to conduct because generally most orchestras come with their leader and who they work with. And to work with a leader that has never really done it before <laughs> as well. <laughs> How did you get so, your arms twisted for that then? He's very persuasive, Paul, isn't he? So, like, I just, you know, and I guess Erland was in Involved and he was just like, look, just do it. You've got nothing to lose. And then I spoke to somebody who's um, a friend who's a really amazing conductor. And I said, look, what should I do? And he was like, well, you've got all the drums. You've got everything there. Don't worry about it. Like, you're just generally there to bring in people. And then once I heard that, I was like, oh, yeah, I actually don't need to control the tempo or anything. I'm just there as a kind of facilitator and a, and a in-between. So so that's how I approached it. And then that meant that and then on the live show, as you know, that I could have a really good time and have a bit of a dance as well. So. <laughs> yeah, you were enjoying it. You definitely were enjoying it. I was watching the film back the other day because there's a DVD that comes with it. There's also a, it was on Sky as well, which we've got recorded on the box and watched regularly. But I want to ask you a few questions about it. So one, how do you pick a set list for this of, and pick those songs that are going to work? So we had songs from A Kind Revolution. We talked about True Meanings, but there was you know The Jam, The Style Council, well as earlier solo material. So I'm going to list some of the songs because people won't know. But you know things like One Bright Star from 22 Dreams kicks it off, which I, I love. And it's almost added like a kind of waltz to it, hasn't it? The jam songs like Boy About Town and Private Hell and Tales from the Riverbank, which just sounds so different with an orchestra. It's just amazing. And then the style council we get, Have You Ever Had It Blue, A Man, A Great Promise... And solo songs like Strange Museum, which I haven't, which was probably on that dodgy CD you got back in the day, right? But I hadn't heard that live for about 20 years, you know, in country and Wildwood. How do you pick a set list from that? And you know, how much of it was a collaboration between you and Paul picking the songs or you going, actually, I think this could work? How did it work? No, I mean, that was that was definitely him. I didn't have any... Well, I guess there was a, I guess there was an element of talking through what could work and the instrumentation, but the set list definitely came from him and, and his producers and the management. Like I, I was not privy to that. So there was always talk within that of the set list of, of what would be more brass, what would be led by the strings or what would be the woodwind. So that there was always like a real collaboration in, in that respect. And the rehearsals for that had to be separate so we had to do kind of rehearsals separately so that I could actually hear the recordings, how they were going to be when they were performed. So they had to then rehearse together as a band, then send me that. Then, and then I went to another rehearsal with them and sat and scored as they were rehearsing. So because a lot of it was to do with timings and how it would work 
because a lot of it would be different to the recording because they've obviously always played, the band have played live on stage those songs and worked them into different ways. So I guess that was the one challenge was us all working together so that if I write an extra four bars, the, the band have to play extra four bars. <laughs> um, but I guess one of the things that actually came out of that in that sense, the kind of more logical side of it was the fact that, you know, when we were on stage, by that point, I knew the song so well that if there was a, a verse missing or there was something cut quickly, the you know, the band react to that, but it, it was good because then I would be like to the orchestra, right, we're going from B and I'd indicate we were going from B. And then, so that was a really fun thing to do and it kept everybody on their toes. But, it, you know, the set list, that definitely came from Paul. There's a lovely clip, which I don't know if you've watched the documentary because sometimes watching people, sometimes people don't like watching themselves and you've not watched it. There's a lovely clip of Steve Craddock in the documentary talking about, um, A, how difficult it was because, like you say, this is very different to their normal way of working and saying it was a huge learning curve. And Andy Cross, I think, is talking about how you have to stick to the arrangement. Like you say, it's not like Paul, I think, is talking about you can make mistakes usually in a live gig, you can cover them up and whatever. But this is a very, very different experience for them. And, and they found it a bit terrifying at times. I mean, that sounds like that might have been your experience as well as a first time conductor. But did you see that from the band of like, actually, this is them having to step out of their comfort zone? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But... Wow. I just, when I think back to it, I love the experience because it, we were all in it together. The, in, in some ways, I, I think maybe they looked to me to, to give them a lot of answers, but then I was just looking to them. So, so it was a very collaborative performance in that respect. And, you know, Paul works with the most loveliest people, as you've probably experienced. Every single one of those band members is very lovely and honest and great to work with and it's such a gorgeous family of people and I was just brought into that world and embraced and and had a laugh and yeah loved it and it was great and you know also the brass section under under Phil Vcock is unbelievable and fabulous and Phil was really really helpful for me as well because you know scoring a concert of that size and then thinking about all the prep in order to do the live performance was mammoth. Like it was a massive thing. So actually Phil was really helpful in just like giving me little bits of brass parts that he already had from records and things like that. So it was a really big collaborative show in the yeah. end. Presumably you didn't have loads of time to work on that, did you? Yeah, I had a, yeah, I had a schedule on my wall and it was basically, it was a track a day in September. <laughs> <laughs> So I'd be like, if I didn't do a track on one day, I'd have to do two on the next day. Like, it, So it was a real tight turnaround. <laughs> yeah, you don't um, want that building up suddenly like, shit, I've got five tracks to do in one day. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, and that must be a bit about it, what they're going yeah. through at the moment to get to this live concerts in November. How do you pick tracks from three albums you know, and, and all the back catalogue? must be impossible. So you mentioned the band, and I said I'd come back to Andy Crofts, who's cl clearly a massive, massive talent, not least with the Moons, but he's worked with Paul as well. Um, and he arranged the strings on the track Gravity, but also you get a co credit together on Old Castles, which is another real standout song. So how did that string arrangement work with the two of you together? He was great because he had some of the arrangements. They were kind of scored in a way that didn't really fit the quartet when we were recording. So all I did really was neaten everything up and then suggest kind of voicings of different things. So it was a really lovely process. I mean, he, he's a really great, fantastic musician. So it was it was great to work with him and, and do that. And I'm not precious about, oh, it has to be my arrangement or he wasn't precious about it. You know, he was very much like, just take what you want from it and, and make it better. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, that, so that's what we, we came up with. So it was, it was fun. That was really fun to do. 
Brilliant, brilliant. I'm going to divert away from Weller for a second to talk about um, what came between that project and On Sunset, which was two amazing pieces of work from you, an Emmy nomination, Game of Thrones. If anybody's seen the documentary for, I think it must have been for the final series. It was the last watch, wasn't it? With the night shoots and all that stuff. You created the soundtrack for that. I love the opening with the music box as well. If you haven't heard the music box version of the Game of Thrones theme tune, then you haven't lived quite frankly. But you build those music boxes yourself, don't you? I do, yeah. Yeah, I do. I've I've got a bit lazy in the last few years in that I can't I don't want to sit and punch holes for hours on end so I try and get out of using the music box now but yeah I mean I've got like a whole box reels and reels and reels of paper with holes in that I've sat and you know spent days over but yeah actually you know I was Scott when when we were preparing for that other aspects live album and and the shows I was scoring for Game of Thrones at that point so that it was a lot of doubling up so in the summer before like that you know I started kind of doing the Weller stuff very full on in the September but I had to kind of pre-compose everything else so that I could have September off to kind of do that so it was a lot of um a lot of work <laughs> but I've got used to it yeah, you know, uh-huh. you're constantly spinning plates. And then we have Deceived, which was this um, four-part series on Channel 5, which is now on Netflix, I noticed the other day, which is great. So yeah, it's this really good, like, bingeable drama series, this psychological thriller. It's got twists and turns. It's got a spooky house. It's got all kinds of things going on. And again, when I talk about your stuff being so much more than uh, just music, I don't mean that, but you know what I mean. Didn't you record the sound of the creepy house to, to influence the music? Was that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so The Deceived was my first TV show. And yeah, it was set in a house and actually lucky enough it was in Northern Ireland which is where I'm based and so I got the chance to go on set and record as much kind of field recordings of the house as possible whether it be like this amazingly creepy door that had this sub bass to it when you did it when you creaked it really really slow to like you know one of the rooms had tons of medals in so I just you know like sounds of the medals going up and down and and incredible amount of cut crystal cut glass and so I sampled a lot of those and made my own instruments out of those sounds and actually the score itself was supposed to be more of that atmospheric you know tension driven kind of score but actually when it then came to the the edit and when the director and the showrunners and everybody were in there, it, it was much more hands-on and they wanted, you know, like kind of Bernard Herrmann-esque strings and the references were just completely crazy. So, yeah, so it, it changed very dramatically and very quickly to, to what it is now. Well, brilliant. And again, winning awards. And when we talk about awards, we have to talk about your Mercury Music Prize shortlisted album. Your latest, 2021, saw the release of Fur Wave, which is just, I mean... This- the album for lockdown I have to say because it's so atmospheric I don't know when you started doing it presumably in lockdown one back in you know last year and because it feels like you were kind of embracing nature at the same point that nature was returning to, to our cities and our towns as, as everybody was locked down at home but talk to me about Furway because it's a it's a, a, a brilliant project but B uh, an absolutely beautiful album it's it's a, it's a lovely listen oh, thank you so much um, do you know that record's got a really weird journey the record itself was finished in the beginning of lockdown so I finished The Deceived and and as soon as The Deceived finished in fact we finished The Deceived the recording and the mixing once lockdown had hit so I had to do everything remotely in the end which was really sad because I couldn't record the strings and you know it had to send it all to them to be individually recorded so it was quite a mission so when I finished that I kind of wanted to 
readdress quite a lot of other things that I had. So I already had Furwave, but in a different format. Like it wasn't the record that you have now. It was originally written as uh, and commissioned really as a library record by a really amazing library called KPM, the KPM series. And many, many, many artists have done library records, mostly under pseudonyms, usually if they want to try out a different style or they just want to do something that's different from their normal, what they're recording art thing is EMI actually own KPM now and they came to me and were like why don't you take this 70s record from 1972 Adelia Derbyshire Radiophonic Workshop record and rework it into a modern day electrosonic and they left me to it for like a year and I came back with like kind of seven or eight tracks and said right this is this is what it is and same again like The Deceived what I'd done was because I felt like it was too precious to just sample like say a section and then put that into a track and also it's really hard because it's quite it's such an unusual album electrosonic it's like it's way off the wall and it's very like out there I don't know I just didn't see how I was ever going to be able to approach it so I, I just basically took tiny little fragments and made my own instruments out of those original tape recordings and and then just completely forgot about it and made a, a completely different record and kind of pitched it back to the library and it sat with them for quite a while and they came back and were like look if you ever want to release this just let us know it's a really good record so when yeah when lockdown hit and that easter period of everybody kind of waking up to birdsong all the time and like going out for walks once a day and, and appreciating everything that was around them when you have the silence that was when I was like okay this is fur wave like I need to really reapproach some of these tracks I got um, a lovely friend in Bristol called Tim Allen who works with loads of different people but mostly like bats for lashes and said look can you remix the whole record it needs mixing for release and also can you put some beats down on these two tracks because I've totally can't see the wood for the trees more or less which is ironic because it's called Fur Wave but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, and he came back with like emergence in nature and I was like yeah that's it well, that's the feeling of like, I want to be able to dance to this when we're stuck inside our houses. And um, at that time, I was kind of like, well, you know, when we leave in the summer, we're not going to be in lockdown and everybody will want to have something to celebrate. So that was the kind of thinking definitely behind the connection to nature and the history of the record. But, you know, the reality is it didn't come out until March this year 2021 and then also I didn't really expect it to do as well as it has done it was just supposed to be a small kind of release it was more just to kind of tie me over and stop me overthinking things and just be like oh great we'll put out that little electronic record and, and that'll be it <laughs> and here we are Mercury Prize nomination later I mean the reviews uh, you might have to close your ears because the stroke of genius a gorgeous fizzing record more powerful than lyrics each track communicates its own panorama and sheer sonic beauty just some of the words that have been written about this beautiful album but um, I think I read a really cool article I can't remember what it was it might have been The Guardian they were talking about the power of albums without lyrics in lockdown and how important instrumental albums have been over the past kind of 12 months and stuff and there's something I don't know what your view is on that but there's something about that definitely isn't there oh wow yeah Definitely. I mean, is it because we were subject to so much noise and news and constant reporting? And there's definitely like I, you know, I definitely had to I got to halfway through 2020 and I had to turn off any news 
kind of channels that I had on any kind of social media or anything because I couldn't cope with any more talking about stuff. You know, I guess in when you look at the Mercury Music Prize and the list of the albums on there, there's like a third, which is instrumental, which is the first time ever that's ever been like that. So I guess there is a, a movement towards that type of music in the lives that we are leading in the yeah. 2020s and onwards. So, um, yeah, it's really amazing that actually like it, it kind of touched a lot of people and allowed a lot of people to kind of, I guess, float away with it while we were going through a lot of things. Yeah, there's something lovely about just plugging into your ears and being lost in the moment and lost in your own thoughts whilst you can kind of um, sit and listen, which is brilliant. And you must be so happy about how that's gone and that, and the reviews <laughs> and the results and all everything from that has been, must have been so nice. God, yeah. I mean, you know... I, it was kind of like one of those things though, like I'll be honest, where you go, why wasn't this a record that like was like one that I was already touring or one that like cost an absolute fortune, like the brass band one, or why does it have to be this one that I'm never going to perform live and I never wanted to like do much with? We only pressed up like 500 vinyl to begin with and I think we've done two and a half thousand now and it's like how is that even like possible (laughs) it's always that way isn't it it's always what you don't expect absolutely and but aren't you performing some of it live at the Mercury Prize is it next week they gave me the option of like well you could do it on your own and, and play it on your own it'll be simple and I was just like I don't want to do this on my own I want to see my friends and I want to have a, a bit of a dance because we're doing the emergency nature track and that's a big track to do just on your own and you know it's got a big massive brass and woodwind section halfway through it that comes pumping in and it, <laughs> you can't do that on your own so um so yeah I've got a couple of friends that are going to help and I can't wait to just like have a laugh on stage and just enjoy the moment for what it is. Because, you know, I don't know, the records I make are very odd sometimes and I just don't think... You just don't know when you might have that opportunity ever again. Celebrate the moment whilst you're in it and, and who knows what the future holds. Yeah. And, and, I, and I'm sure it's going to be a really exciting future. We'll talk about what you're working on next in a sec. But On Sunset, Fat Pop, two albums from Paul in the past, what, year and a bit? Year, 18 months, something like that. On Sunset, you were at Church Studios and uh, there was a little clip. Um, I, I think you sent me some photos of that or Fat Pop as well. But actually, I think it's in the making of. There's a little clip of you and there's no real brief for your work on On Sunset from what I can understand. It's just cinematic sounding, more violins, go for it. So talk, talk me through On Sunset and how, how you worked on that one. <laughs> that was basically it. <laughs> oh, really? Is that, look, that the brief? <laughs> Yeah, it was just like, go for it. We want big summer fun. And that was, that was it. Like, and so I went away and yeah, like what I said earlier, like I'd heard the demo kind of mixes in the studio or half mixes in the studio. And you get a vibe that actually like it, for me, it felt like a Beach Boys type of vibe or like that classic sound where all the strings are doing the same melody at once and there's not much kind of complicated layering or anything. You just need a big thing to kind of hook yourself onto. And so that's what it, that's what I offered and that's what went on the record. So um, that's why I love working with Paul because there's no kind of complications to stuff. Like I've worked with some artists where it's like, no, n- another try, no, another thing. And he's just like, yeah, I love what you do. Great. And I think that's amazing. I shouldn't like also forget that Stan is like a massive part of these records as well. Like he he is, you know, sat in those sessions and when we're doing the strings, he's at the back kind of like going, right, can we do that one again? And, you know, it's not just Paul and me. There is like a whole amazing team 
of people. Fat Pop Volume 1 arrives in May. Was this something you had to work on remotely? Because I know he was recording things and, and on a click track, which every time I hear him mention that, I mean, I mean to Google a click track to see what the bloody hell he's on about, because I have no idea what that means. But he was recording stuff and sending it to you to send stuff back, or did you manage to get in and into an actual studio on that one? No, for um, Fat Pop, actually, we did that in the summer of, of 2020. So that was the first time I came across... I didn't do it remotely. A lot of the band did, but that was the first time I'd seen everybody and seen people more than like two people in my garden or whatever. And I was really freaked out about it actually because it felt so weird. And the first thing I, when I got there, Paul just gave me a big hug. And I was like, <laughs> I kind of went, oh, like, why are you hugging me? I don't want to, if I have something, I don't want to give it to you. So yeah, yeah you don't um, want to be the one who gives it to Wella, do you? <laughs> no. So I felt really awkward about that. And then it was a really hot day. It was like 29 degrees and there was no windows open in the church because of obvious reasons for recording. And oh my God, it was so crazy hot. I remember I had to take a break halfway through because I was like, I can't deal with this. This is too much. Like seeing like, you know, it was about 40 people in one day in a 30 degree heat. And <laughs> I imagine like, like I sensory overload as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a bit of a breather halfway through the session, but it was really good. And again, very much like a, a really fun session. Like there wasn't anything that was, it was just like, Big strings, really like this type of tune. Yeah, it was good. I mean, the thing that I found when I when I, that album landed, and we'd had a couple of preview singles and things, but you kind of go forty years on with his writing songs like Glad Times and Cobweb Connections, which I know um, your your works on, and That Pleasure, the song that's a reaction to Black Lives Matters, and, and even the deluxe album. There's a track Serafina, which I think you worked on, oh, as yeah. Well, yeah, which is beautiful. Yeah. You're like still producing this amount of material that's that's right up there with his very best. It's incredible. Yeah. The amount of material he has is insane. Like on, on every record, there is always like, whenever you go into the studio, there's always a list at the back of all the tracks and there's always way too much more than an album. Like it's, you know, they're having to pick. But I guess that's what makes his music so good because you're you're overwriting and then you get the best pick of the bunch in the end. And, and if it doesn't work, I'm pretty much guessing that he does recycle other things and put them towards the next one. So amazing. Like to have someone like that that is living and you can talk to and and learn off and be inspired by is just is such a gift because you don't really get that a lot bet, from other artists older and, artists and it must be lovely seeing the album out there there you are your, your credits are on a Paul Weller album that, that must be a brilliant feeling too isn't it yeah it's lovely yeah yeah I hope he I hope he still works with me now <laughs> <laughs> after the podcast I should ask you two things as well before we um, before we wrap up one was the Declan O'Rourke album which again was a connection through Paul Weller oh, to, to yeah. Paul, Paul produced this brilliant album which is called Arrivals which again came out earlier this year Paul produced and created that with Declan but um, you did all the string arrangements on that as well right? Yeah that was another great one and the you know the, the beautiful string players from Demon Strings as well and he's really good at putting my name forward for other things and saying get Hannah to do it and I really appreciate that because it's not my main thing that I'm known for it's 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 a side thing that I love doing, but I don't get the opportunity and I don't promote myself. So when he comes along and says there's someone called Declan O'Rourke and I'm like, oh, I've heard of Declan. And, you know, since then I've done, I've 
become friends with Declan and done some other things for him as well. So yeah, that was a great record to do. And again, another summer, summertime recording. Yeah. So it's always a good memory of like being outside and recording in the sun. And yeah, it's lovely. It was a good record that to record. And also like uh, you were talking about click tracks and things and Declan doesn't record to a click, like a, a solid BPM. He records very naturally. So there was an, a massive element of scoring all the strings to something that shifts all the time in tempo and that in itself can be quite a challenge if you want to kind of give somebody a demo of of what it's going to sound like but he's a great artist Oh, he's brilliant. And I'm looking for, I've seen him live a few times. I'm looking for, he's coming over to, um, to London in no, beginning of November to tour that album. And, and I'm really looking forward to, to seeing that live. It's going to be great. Be brilliant. I have to ask you as well about Para Orchestra. So this was the other thing I wanted to touch on, which I think you worked on, on Sunset. Um, that was the other strings orchestra that you worked on for on Sunset. Would that be right? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, just before we go on to that, um, Paul actually put me in touch as well with Dot Allison and her record that just came out a month ago. That came through Paul as well. And I did like, I think, four or five tracks of strings for her. Yes, of course. How, how could I skip over that? Heart Shaped Scars, the album. Dot Allison's new one that came out this year, which is brilliant. And of course, they worked together, didn't they? About like a, well, been about 10 years ago. Um, co-write a song on Dot's album, Love's Got Me Crazy, the song. They co-wrote together in duetted. She's brilliant. I love I love Dot Allison. Great. Brilliant. Yeah. He's kind of putting you out there and making, like, he's almost like your agent. <laughs> he is. And, you know, Dot has worked with him. Yeah, we co-wrote. And then also she recorded, I think, a record in Black Barn. He just gave her the, the studio for free for, a couple of weeks which he does quite a lot if it's not in use for people and yeah so yeah para orchestra I got Paul quite a lot of different quotes of different orchestras when we were looking to record on Sunset and you know we all came to the conclusion I was like, like para orchestra they're they're incredible they bring in session players it's you know they're amazing to work with and and so we, we got them on board and we did it again for Fat Pop as well this story continues with them because they're part of your next project. Like I said about spinning plates at the beginning, <laughs> it, you never stop. This is the unfolding. So this is your next piece of work. This is an album and a live gig or? So Para Orchestra, it's all connected. Everything's connected. But uh, Para Orchestra commissioned me to write them a piece three years ago. <laughs> Over three and a half years ago. And I was so busy with like Paul and Game of Thrones and things. I just had to keep putting it back until lockdown. And then once Furwave had kind of been done. I was right, just writing away, and I managed to get this commission done for them. And it ended up kind of just being over an hour of music. You know, we were like, "Oh, we'll do a show in in October 2020," and then it was like, "No, we're not going to be doing that." And then it was kind of like, "Well, why don't we do one for the spring in 21?" And then, and then I was like, "Look." you've never made a record before. Why don't we make this as, as an album? And so we went into that process of finding somewhere to do it, how we fund that, because it's there's such a unique orchestra. There's, there's so many different elements to each player that is in that orchestra and safety as well. Like they're quite vulnerable as well with health. So yeah, eventually we made this recording in actually the week that Furwave came out I was in the studio the whole week recording the unfolding it'll come out as an album in 2022 so yeah we've got a live show in Bristol on the 1st of October and that's our first show and that's kind of like a I guess a preview or a test run of all the music um, to see if it's all working <laughs> and, but yeah I can't wait it'll be really exciting 
Brilliant, brilliant. Well, look, I, I'm really excited about what the future holds. I, I love the fact that every time a new project's announced, we know that we're going to get something completely different from what's come before <laughs> yeah. from yourself. Uh, but also that's very true of Paul as well. And I love that kind of influence on it all too. But um, I have two final questions for you, Hannah, before you go. Um, one of them, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council or solo. Which one's it going to be? Wow. I would, I, I, I do think, hmm. I don't know. It's a toss up between Private Hell and You Do Something To Me. You Do Something To Me because of the connection to that was my first song. So that I probably will choose that one. But Private Hell was just so much fun to do live and play. And I loved it. It was so good. Oh uh, yeah, I'm going to go with Private Hell. Yeah, that stands out. I have to say that one on the um, on the on the live album that we talked about, the orchestrated and conducted. That's so clever. I mean, it's such a it's such a bleak lyric that when you if you read the lyric sheet for that, isn't it? It's like it's like my God, honestly. And this is a song from you know 1979 from Setting Suns from the Jam. And I think Steve Craddock said on the documentary the work that you did on that it sounds so current. That sounds like a song that is right now, but it's so dramatic, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's whoa. <laughs> oh, that was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I guess like it's I guess when you don't have a connection you know those those songs are very precious to a lot of people and including yourself and there's there's definitely an element of like oh my god am I going to do the right thing by it but then also I was like well I've got no connection to this song I'm just going to make it how I think it's it should be as a live show and just and how that's going to feel live and and forget about all the kind of the pressure of like honoring what other people like and want and so that that's the approach I took to all of those older songs I mean god I mean he wrote that when he was so young like the jam you totally forget how young he was like it it's just you know it's amazing unbelievable yeah that was like his late teens he was like 19 20 21 something like that I think okay final question so the purpose of this podcast is not least to talk to amazing people like yourself uh, but it's also to um, get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed in my radio career if it happens what should I talk to him about? Is there anything you think I should ask him or anything, any topic you think would go down well in, in conversation? Bowie, massive, massive Bowie fan, massive Beatles fan. I think like anything to do with that, if, you know, if he's ever met them or what he would say to them or ask them, okay. I think that would be a good conversation starter for sure. I hope you get it. So. Oh, bless you. Well, bless you, Hannah. Hey, look, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it because like I say, you are ridiculously busy. There's no doubt about 20 projects that we haven't talked about that you're working on at the moment with all those plates spinning, right? You're nodding. <laughs> but this has been so brilliant. So thank you so much for your time, Hannah. Oh, you're very welcome. No, Absolutely. it's amazing. Your knowledge, what you've done, like research, you knew everything. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what as well? Thank you for having me. Wow, wow, wow. What another amazing guest an absolute joy. My thanks once again to the Robert De Niro of the music world, Hannah Peel. Such an inspiring and talented individual doing some amazing things right now, a real talent. So do dive into my show notes to discover more about Hannah's work. Now coming soon on the podcast, we'll be hearing from Dylan Jones, some super fans known as the Jam Tarts, broadcaster John Wilson, author David Lyons, and musicians Seku Keita and Kamel Hines, to name a few of my very special guests. Make sure you subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts, leave a review, you can buy me a coffee and find information about my guests in the show notes. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.